Hello and welcome to Buried Treasure. This is Lou Smoley, your commentator, uh, and the program today uh, is the fourth uh, in a series we've been presenting uh, of the lesser-known composers of symphonies uh, in the classical period of the 18th century, those in this part who were born from the middle of the century uh, to the beginning of its last quarter. These composers all flourished when Mozart, Haydn, and Baccarini were the leading composers of the day. At this time, the classical symphony, which had developed throughout the 18th century, was at its height, and its principles were the standard against which not only late classical symphonies, but symphonies thereafter, were judged uh, and their value determined. Our first composer is Georg Josef Vogler, as Abbe Vogler, because of not only his early religious instruction in Bomberg, uh, but the positions that he carried uh, in the first quarter of his life. After he was appointed chaplain at the court at Mannheim, uh, the elector Karl Theodor was so impressed with Vogler's musical abilities that he gave him money to study in Italy with Padre Martini, who was Mozart's most famous teacher. But Vogler didn't get along too well with Martini, who thought that the young budding composer lacked both aptitude and perseverance. When Vogler returned to Mannheim in 1775, he soon became vice Kapellmeister of the orchestra there, where Holzbauer, uh, who we heard from in an earlier program on this subject, was his superior, and Christian Kanabisch, one of his colleagues. We also sampled from music uh, of Kanabisch earlier. Possibly influenced by Martini and Vogler's disparaging remarks about Johann Christian Bach, Mozart didn't think very much of Vogler. In fact, uh, he said uh, rather disparagingly, he's a dreary musical jester, an exceedingly conceited and rather incompetent fellow. The whole orchestra dislikes him. After Karl Theodor left for Munich, when he became Elector of Bavaria, Vogler stayed behind, but soon went to Munich to become first Kapellmeister, and then to Sweden to take the same post. At that time, Sweden was ruled by the famous Gustavus III, whose assassination inspired Verdi to write his Umbalo in Moscow. After the assassination, Vogler left Sweden and was appointed Kapellmeister and Privy Councillor for the ecclesiastical affairs of the Grand Duke of Hessen-Darmstadt, a post he retained for the rest of his life. Vogler also became a noted music teacher, with such notables as Karl Maria von Weber and Giacomo Meyerbeer as his most famous pupils. But Vogler was a gifted composer, uh, both of opera and of symphonies and orchestral music. We're going to listen to his Symphony in D minor, written in Paris in 1782, scored for pairs of flutes, oboes, bassoons, four horns, two trumpets, timpani, and strings. Notice the substantial orchestra, uh, particularly for the time it was written. The symphony is in the then traditional three movements. Uh, they are Allegro Molto, which contrasts woodwind and full ensemble segments, and an octave phrase sounds much like both Mozart's and Beethoven's C minor piano concerto music. The second movement is an andante in D major with a minor key middle section, 
that contains material based upon music from the first section. And finally, an allegro which begins and ends in D minor. We hear the London Mozart players, conducted by Matthias Bammert, uh, in the symphony in D minor by Georg Josef Vogler.
We've just heard Vogler's Symphony in D minor, performed by the London Mozart Players, directed by Matthias Baumert. Another German-born symphonist during the latter half of the 18th century was Franz Anton Hofmeister. Fourteen years after his birth in 1754, Hofmeister left his native Rotenburg for Vienna, but to study law, not music. It is there, however, that he did study music as well, with one of the most notable teachers living in Vienna at the time, Johann Georg Albrechtsberger, who was later to become Beethoven's music teacher. Besides having written a goodly number of works, Hofmeister also became a music publisher. Among his customers were Mozart uh, and Johann Baptist von Hall, whose music we heard during the third part of this series. Hofmeister was a well-respected composer and wrote a substantial amount of music in all the popular genre of the times, including, of course, symphonies. Although his music was not particularly original, it was quite popular in its day. We're going to listen to uh, Hofmeister's Symphony in G, which has the interesting subtitle La Festa della Pace, 1791. Uh, this work is uh, fairly late in Hofmeister's oeuvre, written in, to commemorate the signing of the peace treaty between Austria and Turkey in the year referred to in the title, 1791. It's a substantial work, lasting nearly 25 minutes, and is in four movements. They are Allegro, Poco Adagio, a third movement minuet, uh, the first part of which is an Allegro, uh, and then there follows a trio. And the finale is marked uh, Allegro Molto Turquesco, which of course features Turkish music, including the traditional uh, instruments used to to project a, a Turkish flavor in the music, the triangle, cymbals, and bass drum. Haydn, of course, would use uh, them uh, a few years later in his own G major symphony, The Military. Unlike Hofmeister's earlier work, here he becomes quite adventurous in terms of, of harmonic design. For example, the second subject of the first movement is in B-flat, the minor third of the major key that we're in, which is G, uh, instead of the usual fifth, uh, which would be D. And in the third movement, uh, the uh, key is fairly distant from G. It's in E-flat major. So let's listen now to the symphony in G, subtitled La Festa della Pace, 1791, written by Franz Anton Hofmeister and performed by the London Mozart Players once again, directed by Matthias Bammert.
That was the Symphony in G by Hofmeister, uh, performed by the London players uh, under their conductor, Matthias Bamert. Although Niccolo Zingarelli is usually associated with the melodramas he wrote and with his Giulietta e Romeo that was all the rage on the Italian stage at the end of the 18th century, he, he was quite active in other fields of composition. The last champion of the Neapolitan operatic school, Zingarelli imparted the principles of that school in his symphonies, of which he wrote over 80. Some of them merely repeat established format. Others, uh, like mirror images of his contemporaries, went beyond the standard form. Yet he had an influence on such notable opera composers as Bellini and Mercadante. While in Milan, Zingarelli wrote 12 symphonies that are all basically in traditional classical style, 
scored for pairs of oboes and horns and the usual strings. We're going to hear the symphony in D minor uh, from the early 1880s. Again, the movements are in the traditional uh, fast, slow, fast format. Um, but here, the music is deeply rooted in the operatic Italian symphonia. But in character, Zingarelli's music and this symphony in D minor we're going to hear uh, was clearly uh, part of the Sturm und Drang uh, period uh, that uh, was much in the works at the time. Most notable are the independent treatment of the oboes, several violin solos, a minuet middle movement with a melancholy theme that moves by fits and starts and has a pastoral trio. Haydn's influence is apparent in, in the Sturm und Drang finale, written in sonata form with a kind of dialectic thematic development and an unusual double recapitulation that transforms the minor key first theme into the major. We hear it now performed by the Orchestra Sinfonica di Donetsk, conducted by Silvano Frontalini, the symphony in D minor by Niccolo Zingarelli.
music of Niccolo Zingarelli. Uh, it was his symphony in D minor that we just heard, performed by the Orchestra Sinfonica di Donetsk, conducted by Silvano Frontalini. Our next composer may well be the most important symphonist of the latter part of the 18th century, next to Mozart and Haydn. Although no longer a familiar name, even to classical music lovers, Josef Martin Krauss, made a major contribution to the development of the symphony, possibly more important uh, than any other uh, composer of his time than Mozart and Haydn. While Haydn concentrated on motives and themes, combined with a marked and highly diverse use of rhythm, Mozart expressed himself in elegant linear material, richness of color in harmony and instrumentation, as well as, of course, his brilliant classical proportion. But Josef Martin Krauss brought his dramatic style to the forefront in his symphonies, much under the influence of Willibald Gluck. Krauss was born in Germany, at first apparently headed in the direction of an ecclesiastical career, but as a teenager, he studied philosophy and jurisprudence at Mainz University, but at the same time, began a thorough education in music. First, one of Bach's pupils, Johann Christoph Kittel, was his music teacher. Soon, Krauss developed a penchant for the Sturm und Drang, which was, again, so popular during the latter uh, quarter of the 18th century. And, and certainly he shared this proclivity with Haydn. After Krauss moved to Stockholm, during the reign of Gustavus III, he decided to set his sights on music as a calling. After becoming royal master of the chapel, he began touring Europe, finally meeting up with Gluck in Vienna, who complimented him for his grand style. Krauss 
also became acquainted uh, with the celebrated music teacher I mentioned earlier, Johann Albrechtsberger, who taught Beethoven uh, and Haydn, uh, and to whom Krauss dedicated his symphony in C minor, which we're going to hear. Uh, the work was revised from an earlier work in the key of C sharp minor. Uh, musicians uh, in the audience will understand why that might have taken place. It's a difficult key to write in. As with most of Krauss's symphonies, his C minor uh, is in three movements. Written in the early 1780s, uh, it shows the significant influence of Gluck's dramatic style. The slow introduction to the first movement might well have been modeled on the opera Iphigenia in Aulis. For this symphony, Krauss disposed of a usual minuet movement, which would probably not be in keeping with the symphony's overall dramatic character. The outer movements have distinctive forms in which repetition is reminiscent of the ritornel style, which became more a part of dramatic arias than of the work's structural scheme in either the middle movement or the finale. The Andante middle movement could be termed a romance, although contrasting elements do intervene. In fact, contrast is a major stylistic trait in Krauss's symphonies. Solos notwithstanding, winds are used mainly for coloristic effect. Strong contrast between unison parts and orchestral tutties and strong accents on weak beats and rhythms full of pathos are all typical of Strauss's style. We hear the conductorless Concert Kern performing the symphony in C minor by Josef Martin Krauss.
That was the Symphony in C minor by Josef Martin Krauss, performed by the Concert Köln without a conductor. During Krauss's travels through Italy, where his meeting with another great music teacher, Padre Martini, made a strong impression, Krauss celebrated the Handel Centenary in London after a two-year stay in Paris. He finally returned to Stockholm in 1786, writing symphonies for state occasions. In his day, Josef Martin Krauss was a name as familiar to the cultured public as was that of Mozart and Haydn. As the years went by, Krauss continued to experiment with coloristic harmonies and dramatic elements in his symphonies, which soon topped his music in other genres in popularity. We're going to listen to another Krauss symphony, this one in F major from 1787. It shows some influence of the Parisian sojourn he made a few years earlier. Of its three movements, the first is marked Largo, Maestoso, Allegro, Vivace. And there we have unexpected harmonic turns and sudden tremolos uh, in abundance. The music's dramatic effect is heightened by these techniques. The second movement, marked Larghetto Amoroso e Semplice, is a cross between a gavotte and a French rondo, recognizable for the frequent reprise of the flute theme, which contrasts with the intervening episodes in the movement. The fast-paced finale, with its moto perpetuo main theme, alternates with motivic fragments that are exchanged between the strings to heighten the dramatic effect. We hear the Swedish Chamber Orchestra, directed by Peter Sundqvist, in the Symphony in F Major, VB 145, by Josef Martin Krauss.
Josef Martin Krauss, his symphony in F major, VB 145, performed by the Swedish Chamber Orchestra, directed by Peter Sundqvist. A native of West Moravia, Paul Raniski, led a full and rich musical life. He became the most celebrated Hungarian composer of his day. In the mid-1780s, Vraniski was appointed music director at the Esterhazy Court, where Haydn was to be master of music for many years. In 1790, Vraniski became orchestra director of both the Berg Theater and the Kirtnator Theater in Vienna, where he composed symphonies, stage works, concertos, quartets, pretty much in every genre. He was also celebrated as a violinist and conductor. Between 1799 and 1800, both Haydn and Beethoven asked Vraniski to conduct premieres of their works. And those works were the creation of Haydn and Beethoven's first symphony. Vraniski wrote 51 symphonies during the last two decades of the 18th century. They are excellent examples of the late classical style, particularly in the extension of movements, in a predomination with melodic invention, and an outstanding facility for orchestration, with particular interest in the winds. Like Haydn and Beethoven, Vraniski often begins fast movements with a slow introduction. Contrasts in his music are most striking, uh, even more so to some extent than in Krauss's symphonies. Between 1790 and 1800, Vraniski wrote no less than four works celebrating his national heritage. His symphony in C, subtitled Joy of the Hungarian Nation, was the earliest. When Hungary was restored to quasi-independence in mutual union with Austria under Joseph II in 1790, this symphony was played in dedication of this historic event. Its three movements have titles. The first, the nation's first jollification and its dissemination a substantial sonata movement. The second, the pleasant sensibilities of the estates of the realm and the unity restored among them. A quite interestingly organized movement with some impressive emotional quality. And third, the joy of community on the occasion of the return of the Holy Cross, which had been previously housed in Vienna. This movement combines an animated main theme with fanfare and dance elements that are noticeably Hungarian in character. We hear the Hungarian Chamber Orchestra, conducted by Filmos Patrai, in the symphony in C major, subtitled Joy of the Hungarian Nation, by Paul Raniski.
That was the music of the 18th century classical symphonist from Hungary, Paul Vraniski. His symphony in C, subtitled Joy of the Hungarian Nation, performed by the Hungarian Chamber Orchestra, directed by Vilmos Tatrai. Written around 1800, Vraniski's Symphony in D Major, Opus 36, begins with a, a rather ceremonial opening, followed by a winsome theme. The inner movements have distinctive and noticeable cultural characteristics uh, appropriate from the titles. For example, the Allegretto movement uh, is referred to as Alarus uh, and Polonaise possibly sourced in the movement of troops from these locales throughout Europe at the time. After a mysterious introduction, the fourth and final movement, Arondo, recalls the magic flute, where the trumpet discards the previous mood and brings in more earthy music. The strong contrast between the solemn introduction of the finale and the popular main theme that follows shows an influence of the times. And so we'll hear the symphony in D major from 1800 by Vraniski. It's performed by the Dvorak Chamber Orchestra, directed by Bohemil Gregor.
Symphony in D Major by Paul Vraniski was performed by the Dvorak Chamber Orchestra, directed by Bahomil Gregor. Our next symphonist, who flourished during the last quarter of the 18th century, Ignaz Pleyel, was not only a highly talented composer, but by the turn of the century, he became one of the most sought-after composers of his day throughout Europe. Even Mozart thought his fame would outdo that of Haydn. Pleyel was born in Lower Austria in 1757, the son of a village schoolmaster. He was something of a child prodigy. He studied with the famous composer of the time, whose music we heard from in an earlier program, Johann Baptist von Hall, and then with the great Haydn himself. In later years, there was talk about a contest between Pleyel and Haydn, which naturally never came off, and they remain friends ever since. Soon, Pleyel became assistant to the Kapellmeister of the Strasbourg Cathedral, none other than Franz Zaber Richter, whose symphonies we heard in a previous program in the series. Pleyel lived in France during the upheavals of the revolution and was denounced several times as a favorite of the aristocracy. In fact, he saved himself from hanging only by composing an enormous revolutionary cantata. Unfortunately, he couldn't retreat to his native Austria because there he was considered a sympathizer of the revolution, due primarily to its having written the cantata. Ironically, today, Pleyel is known as an historical figure, principally for founding a piano manufacturing company in 1807, which produced some of the finest instruments available. As a composer, however, Pleyel was immersed in the style of the v of Viennese classicism, not surprising given that he studied with Van Hall and Haydn. Pleyel's symphonies are of the highest quality, charming and replete with lovely melodies, We'll hear two of them. First, his symphony in D major. Uh, the cataloger is Benton. The number is 126. Uh, and this D major symphony is from 1785. It was written for pairs of oboes and horns and the usual string complement. The symphony opens with a bright and gay allegro assai, the second movement, Anandante, uh, where the opening section is rather melancholy but gives way to an allegro middle section before returning to the beginning. A carefree minuet movement follows, marked moderato, and the symphony ends with a delightful, uh, as well as rather confident, allegro, uh, which itself has elements in common with Mozart's E-flat major symphony, KV 543, which was written three years later. The Vienna Concertverein and the Vienna Symphony, directed by Christian Birnbaum, to perform the symphony in D major by Pleyel.
just heard the symphony in D major, 
the catalogue number Benton 126 by Ignaz Pleyel. It was performed by the Vienna Concertverein and the Vienna Symphony, directed by Christian Bernbaum. Written in 1790, during the reign of terror that swept France in its worst devastation, uh, possibly in history, Pleyel's Grand Symphony in F seems somewhat oblivious to the turmoil that was going on around him. It has the traditional four-movement structure, first Allegro Assai, followed by an Adagio movement, then the traditional minuet with a trio and a finale marked Vivace. Again, Haydn figures largely as an influence. Even Baccarini seems to come through in the rather pleasant slow movement. A graceful minuet and trio is followed by a comfortable and somewhat mild finale, at least for the times. We hear the North Austrian Tonkunstler Orchestra, directed by Paul Ungerer, in the Grand Symphony in F Major by Ignaz Pleyel.
The Grand Symphony in F Major by Ignaz Pleyel was performed by the North Austrian Tangkünstler Orchestra, directed by Paul Ungerer. As we mentioned in an earlier program in this series, Poland produced a fairly sizable number of composers who worked closely with either the church or the court in the 18th century. For example, we've already heard a symphony by Jakob Golubek, the symphonies of our next composer, Jan Wanski, are typical of the Polish symphony during the late 18th century. We know little about the history of his symphony in D major, other than it was written about 1780. Uh, its traditional four movements uh, include outer movements in sonata form, a larghetto movement, which is placed second, of course, and is in ternary form, based on a variations principle. The minuet and trio that follows gives a nod uh, to the traditional emphasis on winds, particularly flutes here. And the finale, marked Allegro con moto, is both forceful and confident. The Warsaw Chamber Opera Orchestra, directed by Mieczysław Nowakowski, to perform the symphony in D major by the Polish composer of the late 18th century, Jan Wanski.
music of the Polish composer Jan Wanski from about 1780, his symphony in D major, performed by the Warsaw Chamber Opera Orchestra, directed by Mieczysław Nowakowski. Wojtek Jurovec, or in the German spelling, Girovec, uh, the differences being uh, in, in the Czech, it would be J-I-R-O-V-E-C, and in the German, G-Y-R-O-W-E-T-Z, so don't be fooled, they are the same composer. Uh, Jurovec was born in the very town south of Prague where Budweiser beer hailed from a locale noted for producing many musicians during the 18th century. I wonder why. His early music studies were with his father, who was choir master of the cathedral in Budweiss, but when he went to the University of Prague, it was to study law. He obtained a secretary position in Brünn, or Brno now, to Count Franz von Firthkirchen, in part because even the Count's staff had to also be musicians and give concerts as part of their duties. Talk about a, an interesting proclivity. In his early 20s, Jurovec, by this time, had already had 12 symphonies under his belt, which were written, as he admitted, to the taste of the times. But as had so many Bohemian musicians before him, Jurovec went to Vienna in 1785 where he met Mozart, who befriended him and performed one of his symphonies. A year later, Jurovec decided to go to Italy, continuing to follow the path of so many of his colleagues, uh, where he spent three years. Uh, in Florence, he met Nardini, and while in Rome, Goethe. After traveling around Italy, he went to Paris in 1789, during the height of the revolution. There he found out that one of his symphonies was being played there but attributed to Haydn. Later in that year, Jurovec left for London, where he met the famous music impresario Johann Peter Solomon, for whom Jurovec wrote symphonies uh, in and around the time that Haydn did. In 1792, after traveling through Europe, Jurovec returned to Vienna, where he uh, spent the rest of his long life, except for a short period in Germany. Jurovec played several important roles in Viennese music society as composer, conductor, and teacher. In fact, he had the honor of being one of the pallbearers at Beethoven's funeral. Jurovec wrote in all genre popular in his day, including 30 operas, numerous ballets, incidental music, and over 40 symphonies. I've chosen his symphony in D major, opus 12, number 1, which is a fairly late work uh, in terms of the symphonies we now have uh, extant. It's, in fact, it's nearly half an hour in length and was written in the early 1790s. It scored for a fairly substantial orchestra consisting of pairs of flutes, oboes, horns, trumpets, and timpani with the full complement of strings. A brief slow introduction opens the first movement, giving way to a lively allegro with a gentle A major second subject for oboe and strings. Uh, in fact, it occasionally turns into the minor. There is even a tiny third subject in the movement for strings alone that precedes a rather fierce development based upon the first bar of the allegro subject with subtle variations. 
As one might expect, trumpets and timpani are silent in the gentle slow movement in G, which includes some interesting alternation between pizzicato and arco strings. After a rather stalwart minuet with a wistful trio featuring an oboe, the symphony concludes with a witty Haydn-esque rondo. We hear again the London Mozart players, uh, directed by Matthias Baumert, in Wojtek Eurovec's Symphony in D Major, Opus 12, Number 1.
That was the Symphony in D, Opus 12, number one, uh, by the Bohemian composer Wojtek Jirovic, 
was performed by the London Mozart Players, directed by Matthias Bamert. Although England in the 18th century already had the reputation of being musically derivative of continental European styles, given the major influences of Handel and J.C. Bach, who immigrated to its shores, the British Isles did produce William Boyce, whose symphonies represent a throwback to the Baroque style and were not included in the program for that reason. Uh, yet there was at least one other English composer who straddled the 18th and 19th centuries uh, and wrote symphonies that were recognized in his time as important in contributing to the development of that genre in the late classical period. Even the venerable Boyce referred to Samuel Wesley as an English Mozart. But Wesley's name has all but disappeared from view. Yet his family, the Wesleys, had a long and prominent history in England dating back over 800 years. In fact, Samuel's uncle was the famous John Wesley, founder of the Methodist movement. His father wrote thousands of church hymns, his, and, and Samuel, the son, showed his talents early on. But at 21, he fell into a, a deep hole um, by a construction site and unfortunately suffered brain damage that caused strong mood swings. An unhappy marriage, which ended only after two years, and constant money problems caused by the difficulty of finding gainful employment made Wesley's life extremely difficult. But as a musician, he held an important position in England's musical world. He promoted the music of J.S. Bach long before it was fashionable to do so, calling the great Baroque composer Old Whig. Wesley was an adventurous innovator who would not settle for the traditional approach that had overwhelmed European composers during most of the half-century since the Mannheim days. He only completed five symphonies that we know of, uh, and we're going to listen to his fifth, the last one, in E-flat major. Uh, although the earlier of the five symphonies are from 1784, uh, they were more uh, tied to earlier styles, such as those of Friedrich Abel and Johann Christian Bach. But with the Fifth Symphony, Wesley asserts himself, particularly with an unusual opening movement. Here, what at first seems rather mild-mannered soon takes on a more dramatic character, in contrast uh, with the more relaxed second theme. Unlike with most of the classical symphonies of his time, there is no clear break between the development section and the recapitulation. Uh, and this adds a certain tension to the music. In fact, it's somewhat of a surprise when the recapitulation uh, comes uh, rather unexpectedly. The slow movement does concede much to more old-fashioned style, and the minuet curiously interjects a horn fanfare into its graceful dance music. The biggest surprise Wesley leaves for the last movement, an extended presto, which has all the traits of the finale of a comic opera, which of all things runs right into the reprise of the minuet. And so we'll hear the symphony number five in E-flat by Samuel Wesley. It's performed by the Milton Keynes Chamber Orchestra, directed by Hilary Davon Witten.
the music of the 18th century English symphonist Samuel Wesley, his fifth symphony in E-flat, performed by the Milton Keynes Chamber Orchestra, directed by Hilary Davin Wetton. Our next composer, Anton Reicher, straddled the 18th and 19th centuries. He was born in, in the same year as Mozart, 1770, uh, but outlived him by almost a decade. It's bizarre that Reicher's name should survive principally as a music theorist. He was celebrated in his day as one of the crowning glories of late classical music, particularly for his wealth of chamber music. Another of the many composers in the 18th century who hailed from Bohemia, it was during Reich's years in Paris that he became known for his compositions, which other than chamber music included operas and symphonies. But his operas did not succeed in a city focused on that genre. As his earlier instrumental music began to be published about 1800 in Germany, in Leipzig, his popularity had a resurgence. Although he didn't actually study with Haydn, he was undoubtedly influenced by the venerable symphonist. During Reich's stay in Bonn, he played the flute in the Cologne Orchestra under the direction of his uncle, Josef Reicher. While there, he studied with Beethoven, who played the viola in the same orchestra. Later, upon his return to Paris, Reicher became a music professor, and his pupils go on to include some of the famous composers of the later time, including Berlioz, Gounod, Adolphe Adam, Friedrich Flotow, and César Franck. He gave private lessons to Franz Liszt. Reicher's Symphony in E-flat, Opus 41, was written around 1799. It's referred to as the first in that genre, although we have evidence they had written symphonies much earlier, though now lost. It's written in four movements, so they are marked Largo, Allegro, Spiritoso, Andante un poco adagio, and a final Allegro. The E-flat symphony was highly successful in its time, principally for its tightly knit and well-unified construction. In fact, in regard to form, it comports with the already well-established principles generated by Haydn and Mozart, but does so in a style perfectly Reich's own. Some interesting surprises are added. For example, an added measure to the principal theme that turns up in the first movement, which results in the formation of a nine-bar rather than the usual eight-bar theme. Another uh, invention is a rather tightly formed sequence of entrances of winds in the trio of the third movement. Uh, and finally, uh, there's a, a somewhat strange C minor middle section that intervenes in the finale. Other distinguishing factors of Reich's music appear here as well. The wealth of melodic variations, his skillful instrumentation, and again the effectiveness of his structure. We hear the Wuppertal Symphony, directed by Peter Gulke, in the Symphony in E-flat major, opus 41, by Antonin Reicher.
That was the music of Antonin Reicher from the 18th century, his symphony in E-flat, Opus 41, written around 1799, and performed here by the Wuppertal Symphony, directed by Peter Gulke. Our next composer from the late classical period has virtually disappeared from concert halls. Yet in his day, Georg Friedrich Witt was considered a highly gifted and expert composer, on a level with his contemporary Beethoven. In fact, like Reicher, Witt was also born in the same year as Beethoven, 1770, although Witt outlived Beethoven by a full 10 years. After receiving his initial music training on several instruments from his father, Witt became an orchestra player in the court orchestra of Wallenstein, and Witt also toured throughout Europe with clarinetist Josef Beer. They stopped in Vienna to hear Haydn's music, which naturally influenced Witt. As a composer, uh, Witt was primarily conservative, but he also studied composition with Antonio Rossetti, which helped Witt develop his own style within the confines of late classicism, uh, with a slightly Italianesque sense of melody. Witt wrote 23 symphonies that were the centerpiece of his oeuvre, and we're going to hear his symphony number no. 6 in A minor, subtitled Turka, or the Turkish. The symphony was written between 1808 and 1809 um, and shows uh, how much uh, Witt had in common with his contemporary Beethoven. A slow introduction followed by an extensive sonata first movement, a cantabile slow movement, a brief minuet, and a sonata form allegro finale. None other than the music critic, composer, and spinner of tales, E.T.A. Hoffman, praised this work and commented favorably upon the inclusion of Turkish music, particularly through the use of piccolo, bass, snare drums, triangle, and cymbals, which, as I mentioned before, are characteristic of the Oriental style uh, and were incorporated in the work tastefully without indulging in spectacle. The first movement makes ample use of the Turkish idiom, as does the finale. The slow movement, however, has not a trace of Turkish character but recalls the slow movements of Mozart's pupil, Johann Nepomuk Hummel. A fascinating Lendler melody in the cello provides the principal material for the minuet. And so let's listen uh, to the music of Georg Friedrich Witt, his Symphony No. 6 in A minor, the Turkish, performed by the Hamburg Symphony under the direction of Johannes Mirsis.
We've just heard the symphony number no. six in A minor, the Turkish symphony of Georg Friedrich Witt, performed by the Hamburg Symphony Orchestra, directed by Johannes Messes. We close our extensive survey of the classical symphonist of the 18th century with a symphony by another of the many deserving composers whose names have virtually disappeared from concert performance, Christoph Ernst Weisse. Weisse was born in North Germany near Hamburg. After an unsuccessful attempt to study with C.P.E. Bach, Weisse left for Copenhagen to study with the director of the Royal Opera. Here he wrote seven symphonies between 1795 and 1799. Copenhagen played host to symphonies by both Haydn and Mozart at the time, and naturally Weisse was influenced by their art, as were so many in the latter part of the 18th century. Weisse became a major player in the musical life of Copenhagen. His fellow composer Friedrich Kulau thought Weisse a most original composer. Since Copenhagen's Royal Theater was the centerpiece of the city's musical life, Weisse found ways of using some of the material that he wrote in his symphonies in his stage works. For example, the Fourth Symphony was reused for Shakespeare's Macbeth. But I've chosen Weisse's Sixth Symphony in C minor, the catalog numbers DF-122. Like all of these seven symphonies by Weisse, the sixth was written in 1798, but revised thereafter. The choice of a minor key implies a gravity of expression that's apparent in the majestic introduction to the first movement. Rising scales dominate the main material. A subsidiary theme in oboes and strings, and then flutes and bassoons, provides contrast, while the bass sustains a triad motive and dotted rhythms from the introduction retaining the opening atmosphere. During the development section, frequent harmonic changes cultivate the thematic material. A brief C major section during the reprise brightens the atmosphere, at least for a moment, before the grave introduction returns. The slow movement, marked Largo, starts with a horn solo, the remaining winds entering gradually. A violin melody shows the influence of Mozart. The minuet third movement is stately and dignified, using the dotted rhythms of the first movement, alternating with downward-moving themes. A vivace finale in C major concludes the symphony. Its lively main theme, with rapidly moving accompaniment, shows Weiss's mastery of classical polyphony. Confrontations of forte and piano add dramatic quality. The second theme is but a variant of the first, a procedure familiar from Haydn's symphonies. In this masterful symphony, Weisse shows uh, his brilliant uh, creative ability and how cohesively he can integrate his somewhat kaleidoscopic material. Uh, the recording we're going to hear of the Sixth Symphony uh, is by the Royal Danish Orchestra, directed by Michael Schoenwand. And I mentioned that uh, it is one of three CDs that contain all seven symphonies by Weisse on the Marco Polo label. Uh, and so let's listen now to the symphony number no. six in C minor by Christoph Ernst Weisse.
And so, with Weiss's Sixth Symphony in C minor, performed by the Royal Danish Orchestra, directed by Michael Schoenwandt, uh, we bring both this program and our four-part survey of the classical symphonies of the 18th century to a close. I hope that you enjoyed exploring the lesser-known symphonists from this period with me. Next time, we will begin another series, this one on a particular country, the music of Norway. So until then, this has been Lou Smoley wishing you all great adventures in discovering the buried treasures of classical music.